Well, good morning, everyone. About 15 years ago, I woke up on a normal uh, summer morning and I immediately got up and went straight to the shower because I knew if I didn't jump in the shower right away, I'd want to sleep a little bit too long. Oddly enough, I had this weird coughing fit almost as soon as I got in the shower and it was different. I actually tasted blood and it made me afraid. And from that moment and for the next few months, it hurt to breathe. I'm talking literally every single breath that I took, it felt like I was being stabbed. But I'm pretty stubborn, so for about two weeks, I just struggled through it, and I kept coughing up blood. At first, I assumed that I just had some strange infection, but it started to hurt more, and I started to feel weak. I could barely do anything but go to work and come home and rest. After going away with my family for a long weekend to Michigan, I kind of knew that I had to go to the doctor. So I went to my doctor, they got me in pretty quick, and they did an x-ray. And they took me back out to the waiting room and said, just wait here and the doctor will let you know what's going on. A few minutes later, the doctor came out to get me and he asked me to come back into the room with him. And I knew like, this isn't great news, is it? And he pointed to a spot on the x-ray and he said, Neil, this spot is either a tumor or it's a blood clot. And then he told me to get ready to head to the hospital for more testing. I remember going home and I was in my house all by myself and I knew, I just had that sense, like I just need to hear from God. I was helpless to fix myself and I asked God to heal me of whatever was wrong with me. Then I remember sitting down in the floor right in front of my couch and I had my big old Bible sitting there next to me. I prayed just quickly. I said, Lord, guide me to what I'm supposed to read today. And I opened up the Bible and I looked down and I read this, Psalm 6 verse 9. It says, the Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. I remember in that moment, it was as if everything changed. And I didn't know if it was just wishful thinking or if this really was God speaking to me, but it felt like someone was in the room with me. I remember I, I literally looked to my left and I said, that was you, wasn't it? I stood up and I started praying again and I had this extremely warm feeling happen right in that moment in my chest. And I dared to believe that God himself had touched me and healed me in that moment. And I struggled to believe it because I still hurt and I still coughed up blood. The doctor called me and he said, head to the hospital for testing. And after some blood work and a CT, I went with my family to a park right by our house. And almost as soon as we got there, my cell phone rang and it was my doctor. And he said, Neil, how do you feel? And I remember saying to him, how should I feel? He said, it's definitely a blood clot and you need to head back to the hospital for another test. That's really kind of the industry standard for um, diagnosing pulmonary emboli, which are just blood clots in the lungs. I went there and I was stressed out, but I was doing my best to hold on to what I thought I got in prayer. So I had the test, I had more blood work, and I was told that I needed to prepare to be admitted to the hospital but to go wait in the waiting room. I waited for a while and then I was told to come up to the counter because my doctor had called the front desk. 
And he said, well, Neil, I don't know how to explain this to you, but you have nothing wrong with your lungs. There is no blood clot. I must have stood there for too long because the receptionist looks at me and he says, you'd better leave before they find something wrong with you. And I remember the whole place kind of laughed. That day, I had a brand new sense of importance of prayer in my life. And I had this new hope that was being built in me as I started to pray more for other people. Well, my name is Neil, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Edge Church. And I am excited to continue in this sermon series called Alpha as we get to talk about some of the real questions that, that rise up in our lives, like about us, like about our health. So it's probably obvious by now, but we're going to talk about prayer. And specifically, we're going to talk about why do we pray and how should we do it? Prayer is simply talking with God. It's a connection. It's based on relationship and it's not based on rules. In the book of Genesis, we see that God created people to be with them. He actually wanted to hang out with us. Right after Adam and Eve ate from the one tree in the garden they weren't supposed to eat from, God still came to them in person, in the garden. Genesis 3.8, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So even though this was a negative thing, God was wanting to see his people and they had sinned and they were hiding. But from this verse, it is a very logical conclusion to believe that God was used to taking evening strolls with the people that he made. And that same God wants to do that same kind of thing with us today. Now, listen, I understand God is not here with us in physical form. So the form looks different, but the heart is still the same. Jesus doesn't walk the earth with us physically, but he left us instructions on how we can still have that kind of connection with him on how to pray. Matthew chapter six, verses five through eight. It says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So when we pray, it's not about asking him to let him know what your needs are. When you pray, it's about connecting to the one who already does. There are plenty of deep theological concepts that, that we could address around prayer, but the gist of prayer is this. Prayer is simply connection with God. We were created to be in relationship with the one who made us. So relationship is the number one reason to pray. It's, it's essential to communicate just like it is in any of our relationships and our friendships and our marriages. Any relationship goes awry if you don't have a connection, if you don't have communication. Now, of course, there are plenty of other reasons that we pray as well. We pray when we need help. I, I remember some of my first prayers were all about help, reaching out to God, like reveal yourself to me, help me, help me. And still to this day, help is a huge reason that I call on the Lord. But we also pray to acknowledge our gratitude. It's just to say thank you for who you are and what you've done in my life. We pray when we're afraid, of course. 
We pray when we sense that we're out of control or when someone in our family is sick. There's an account of prayer, though, that I find particularly interesting in the Bible. It's in Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 to 33. It says, when the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom. Sodom was a city. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities, is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see what they have done, see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to ask to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40? For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30. Now, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Now, here's the thing. God came to bring judgment on two cities that were known to be moral cesspools. We can relate to this because when we watch the news and we hear about evil places, we kind of want inside, we want there to be judgment on the bad guys and we want the good guys to win until we do something wrong, of course, and then we want mercy for ourselves. So what is it with Abraham here? It's almost like he's got, he's an auctioneer and he's like, hey God, how about 50? For 50, will you save it? Okay, how about 40? And he goes all the way down to 10. Almost sounds like a used car salesman. Like, like that's like, like Abraham, like, why don't you just chill out? Like God has, he's really like, he's giving you a lot. Maybe you should just stop. Take what you can get and go away. But I think what's really important for us to see is Abraham's heart for people. Like these were people that, that they weren't great, like, but he was still asking God for mercy on people. And God showed his willingness to show mercy when hearts are turned to him. 
And I think that in this passage, we can learn a whole lot about how we can effectively pray for others, no matter what the condition of their hearts is. That's what prayer is. It's asking God for things. And that's what Abraham was doing face to face with God, praying for a a city full of people that really had no thoughts about God. They had no thoughts about prayer and they couldn't possibly have cared less that there was someone that was meeting with God face to face and praying for them. Have you ever had someone in your life in a frustrated way tell you that they actually don't want you to pray for them? I've had that happen before, and and the reality is I'll still, I'll respect the uh, agency of any given person because God does. God respects it if we don't want to have anything to do with him. But we all have people in our lives who need prayer, whether they know it or not, because there are things that are happening in their lives and they need divine intervention. So I want to talk briefly about three things that move the heart of God as we pray. And the first is this, the position of your heart before God matters. The position of your heart before God matters. And I don't want you to feel afraid when I say that. I don't want you to think, well, I'm not good enough to have God answer me. I've had people tell me that as a pastor. I've had people say, Neil, would you pray for me? Because you're closer to the big guy than I am. You know, it's just not true. There's absolutely nothing true about that. Let me tell you this. Abraham had boldness to go and and speak to God face to face. But but this was a guy who was in a lot of ways a mess. So many things he messed up, so many sins, so many mistakes. But he kept returning to the path that God had revealed to him. So you know what that tells me? God knows that we aren't perfect. He knows that we have this incredible tendency, we have this incredible appetite for the wrong things in life. So to have our hearts be in a right position with God, it doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means that you're willing to learn to choose to do the right thing instead of the wrong thing. In Genesis chapter 15, verse six, it says that Abraham believed God. And it says, and God counted it as righteousness to Abraham. And what that means for us then, it means that when you and I believe what God reveals to us in the Bible, and then we strive to act on it, he's going to be inclined to listen to our prayers. Just think about someone in your life that you have a relationship with. I think about my daughters and when my daughters listen to me and and they go along with what I ask them to do, I try not to put all these heavy burdens on them, but if I ask them to do something, it means a lot when they just really quickly, they just do it. And it, you know, honestly, once they do that, it doesn't even really matter a whole lot what they did the day before. They, they might have frustrated me in some way the day before, but when they try to do the right thing, in my heart and in my mind, it erases those wrongs. And then I get excited. I genuinely feel excited about doing something for them that they want. God's no different than that. James chapter five, verse 16, it says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It's a mark of God's approval. It's saying, yes, I'll give you the things that you're asking for when you ask things that are, that are honoring to me and when you live in a way that honors me by how you live. So our, the, our, our condition matters. The condition of our heart matters. The position of our heart before God matters. Righteousness counts. But then there is something that we actually have to do. 
and that is our persistence in prayer. And really what that is, is it's practicing your belief. Righteousness means that you have believed God is who he says he is, and you receive that character from him. And the more you trust in the Lord, the more you're going to persist in asking God for things, connecting with him. That's persistence. And that's really what Abraham did. He was persistent in talking with God. And we see that and we're like, wow, Abraham, you're pushing it. But I believe that it was exciting to the heart of God because Abraham's persistence meant that he believed God, that he trusted God. And when we pray and we continue to bring situations that are troubling to our hearts and to our lives, I believe God loves it because we are demonstrating that we trust our heavenly father. Jesus taught his followers this lesson in the gospel of Luke chapter 18, verses one through seven. Jesus told his disciples this parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet this widow keeps bothering me. I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Wow, that's, a, that's an interesting picture of prayer, isn't it? What he's saying is, if, if, if someone who is really not good at all, his heart isn't turned to God, uh, will, will listen to the requests of a person who's persistent, how much more so will a good God listen to the prayers of his people? So the position of your heart matters. The persistence in your prayer matters. And finally this, the placement of your trust matters. What does that mean? It does not mean that you trust that God is going to make your life turn out the way you're hoping it will. Maybe it will and maybe it won't, but here's what it means. It means that when you pray, that then you will choose to entrust the results to the Lord. We all have things that we'd like to see happen, right? We'd like to see our friends and relatives start a journey with Jesus. We'd love to see financial breakthroughs for our families. We'd like to get a better paying job or maybe find a spouse or for God to heal our bodies. But honestly, if we're being truthful about how we think, there are some other people that we don't really have those warm, fuzzy thoughts about. What about those people in your life that you just honestly don't have any good thoughts toward? I'm convinced that one of the most significant ways in our lives that we can be more transformed to look like Jesus is when we start loving those who not only don't love us back, but actually are our enemies. And there's nothing natural about it. In Jesus's most famous sermon, he spoke to that issue. Matthew chapter five, verses 43 and 44. He said, you've heard it You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But how do we do that? I mean, that's really hard. That's a hard teaching. We're only going to do it 
when we look at Jesus and follow his example. And here's what Jesus had to overcome with us in his, in his way of loving us. Romans chapter five, verses six through eight. It said, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So who were the ungodly? It was all of us. It was you, it was me, it was everyone. The passage continues, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we learn to be more like Jesus when we choose to pray for our enemies. And not in this self-righteous way, but in a humble way, truly recognizing that the person that we can't stand, the person that feels like they would do anything they, in their power to hurt us, is really just a person like we are, messed up like we were, but God loves us anyway. Ultimately in that story uh, from Genesis chapter 18, God saved Abraham and his family, but he destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Wait a second. I, I, I thought Abraham prayed. Uh, apparently though, it had a lot to do with the hearts of the people in the city. God revealed in this story how much he invites his kids to come to him with all of the prayers on their hearts. But here's the other side of that truth. God lets each person choose their own path even when others pray for them, and even when they choose the path of destruction. Here's the truth. We don't get to choose anyone else's path, but we do get to choose our own. Today, if you've never done it before, I want to encourage you to turn to Jesus in prayer with belief. And when you do that, he will give you his righteousness. Romans chapter four, verse five, it says, however, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. What that means is there's nothing that you can do to get to him. All you can do is receive the one who paid the price for you to come home. And if you're a Christian and you are not exercising your privilege to pray, I hope today that my story of how God answered prayer in my life, I pray that that would be an encouragement for you as you approach God face to face. And when you don't get answers or when you get answers that you don't like, I want you to entrust the results to him because God knows what you need even more than you do. In just a minute, we're gonna close with worship but we'd love to leave you with questions for you to consider in your house churches or wherever you're meeting this week. First question is this, what is your main takeaway from the message? The second question is, when you pray, where does your greatest sense of security rest? Is it in your persistence in prayer or in your placement of trust in God? And why do you think that is? May God bless you and we'll see you next week.